Welcome to the show. I'm your host, Wagner Dos Santos, and this is Wagner Live. In this episode, I have the pleasure of interviewing Carlos Phoenix. He, among many things, is a is a dear friend of mine. Uh, we have um, we we have done some live video streams together. We met on a on a platform uh, moons ago on something called Blab. If uh, if any of you have read it in the history books. Um, and, uh, we've been, we were, we're good friends, have a lot in common, and I'm so excited to have him on the show. As I said, he, um, he's an art director, illustrator, uh, film and video producer, uh, also a former advertising agency professional. So you could see a little, uh, connection there with me, but he also spent some time in the music business, uh, yet another, uh, interesting connection that we both have. And he's a live video personality, and he's just a personality in general. But um, Carlos, uh, Carlos, uh, I'll talk a little bit about Carlos and let him talk about himself. He began his career uh, at the age of 15. He's, he has me beat by two years, and he worked as a paste of mechanical artist, which some of my younger uh, audience members might not know what that is, um, but he'll, he'll be glad to explain it to you. He uh, started as a paste of mechanical artist at a large New York City agency, and uh, that followed uh, by work as an illustrator of comic books. He's an incredible illustrator, um, music, video producer, and even a camera technician at Good Morning America. Uh, Carlos is the founder of the Lounge Network, TLN, which focuses on a series of shows that touches on a variety of categories pertaining to the entertainment industry, from music to film, and uh, also its technology from mobile to cameras. And I am very honored and privileged to introduce my friend, my guest, Carlos Phoenix. Hello. Thank you so much for having me. Um, it's it's weird hearing all that stuff you just said. Um, <laughs> what else? It's it's uh, it's almost like, did I really do all that? But yeah, yeah, it's it's pretty accurate. So uh, I'm. I know glad- you're only 20 years old. How did you do it in all that so, time? <laughs> so thank you, man. Uh, well, Car- Carlos, um, I. Thank you, thank you, by the way, for being on the show as well. And um, I, I wanted to start, as I often do with my interviews, just um, allowing people to get to know the person. I mean, can you give us a, a little uh, kind of your career journey um, from from fifteen here? How did you how did you do all all these different things? What was that journey like? Um, all right. Well, okay. So I'll start off from birth. Um, I was born <laughs> um, with immigrant parents. And, um, you know, very poor household. And fast forward a couple of years, uh, at the age of two, um, I had a heart murmur of which they had to surgically repair, uh, forcing them to kind of, and I don't know exactly the details, obviously I was two, but, you know, uh, take my heart. I believe they took it out, repair it, put it back in. Um, Of course, so my family had a lot of suffering and a lot of bill payments to do at an early age and me, you know, not being able to participate in that as well. Uh, of course, all that was top secret. I never in my growing up knew that one of the reasons we we're living so poorly is because they were paying for me surviving. That being said, um, I was very fortunate. My dad when in South America, he uh, worked in advertising, he worked in like photo retouching and stuff like that. So I think some of what I am about came from that. And oddly enough, 
my mom here in New York worked at the same ad agency. So oh. that it was Rellswitch Green. And uh, at the age of 15, I was going to the high school of art and design. And she was kind of like, uh, I was starting to get like summer jobs, you know, I was at that age where I can just take some jobs. So I worked at like a local Baskin Robbins, literally like a block away. And, um, and then my second job was the ad agency. And I was really supposed to just pick up garbage. I mean, you know, go down the hallway to the different offices, pick up garbage and stuff. But the, um, the owner of the agency, uh, Mary Wells, and she has a great book out in Barnes and Nobles or in Amazon. Um, she, uh, knew that I was at least artistically inclined because that's what art and design high school is about and knew that I had done some pace of mechanical work in high school. So she talked me, she walked me to the art director of the art agency and had me interview with him and he hated me. Um, but he had to give me a job because of course the owner said so. So, so my early days was pretty brutal um, with an art director. I didn't really like me and I remember his name very clearly, but I'm not going to, throw it out there. And, uh, and I worked at the corner of the, of what is called the bullpen where all the graphic designers and stuff would do the work and it would give me the garbage projects first. I ended up working there for three years. And, um, and while I was going to high school and making very good money, uh, so they paid me fairly, I'll say that. And, um, and more than likely I was probably working there illegally, but I don't know. Um, but that being said, I worked in great projects with uh, Ford Motor Company, Pan Am, Shore Deodorant. I uh, worked in great ad campaigns like Hefty, 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 Wimpy, Wimpy, Wimpy. A uh, couple of I Love New York stuff. Uh, Pan Am Airlines, which is no longer around. Uh, Benton and Hedge of Cigarettes. Um, and everything was done by hand. I mean, literally. Uh, pen and ink, uh, rubber cement, um, all sorts of poisons and stuff. Um, and tweezers. So, so everything you do in Photoshop and Illustrator was done with actual physical tools. And that's, that was the livelihood at the time. Right. So that, that was the beginning. Yeah. Well, you're talking about retouching. I mean, uh, I think a lot of newcomers in the industry don't really understand how laborious doing photo retouching was back then. I remember it very well. And, uh, you know, you want to talk about that? Like what, what you had to do on a photo? Uh, well, I mean, fortunately for us, um, some of the some of the ads we were doing were for like things like uh, the New York Times, which is black and white, um, Cosmopolitan magazine, and a variety of different publications. So when it came down to photo retouching, you literally were on the actual photograph, painting on the photograph uh, with a variety of different inks um, to get the different gray tones. You'd mix it with water or white and stuff like that. So yeah, I mean, you're you're basically painting over the photographs, making someone thinner, removing some blemishes, and matching yep. the color of the black and white photograph. Yeah, and you couldn't tell unless you tried to reflect it against light, right? <laughs> yeah, see, you'd see where the paint is on top by angling the picture and having light reflect. You can see where there's dull color, but in newspaper, it's all flat, so you don't see any of those blemishes. Right. Right. That's cool. Quite, quite, quite an adventure. So, I mean, you know, so advertising, so you had, you had kind of family uh, in that, so it wasn't so foreign for you to jump into that, but then, you know, you also had uh, some time and, and maybe even most recently you've done some stuff again in music video. I don't recall, but I know that you had a past in, in music video production, right? 
Well, so so the way that kind of all blended in because eventually it became a mess. Um, my passion at the time was uh, art and illustration and that type of stuff, and that's what I kind of eventually studied in college. But um, having worked at the ad, ad agency, publications were now in my blood. And so when I was going to college, and college in itself is a whole story, but um, when I was going to college, I not wanted to work while I was going to, col to, to college. I would go into the major publications, and one of them was like Crane Business Magazine, uh, which is a very big business-to-business -business publication. And I'd gone there just for like a part-time job that I'd heard about, and when he saw my resume, he's like, well, would you be willing to be the art director? Mind you, I was 19, and but but he saw my resume, he saw the ad agency, and instantly was like offering me this crazy, insane job. And he goes, you know, well, how much do you want to make? And I was so like caught off guard because I'm thinking part time here because I'm going to college, and now I'm looking to possibly making I don't know eighty to one hundred thousand dollars a year. In mm -hmm. and I'm like I'm not even prepared for it. I didn't go to college for this yet. Uh, and uh, long story short, I turned it down because it was a little bit too much, and then it would it would take me away completely from my career, and uh, what would I wanted as a career anyway. Uh, so I went to high, uh, FIT, uh, Fashion Institute of Technology in New York, for one year. That led me to, um, thanks to Mary Wells, going to Italy and learning from the masters, or, or not learning from them, but seeing the masters, totally being influenced by that and coming back with a roaring passion for art. And um, quit FIT when I returned and went to School of Visual Arts. Uh, from there... When I went to school of visual arts, that's when I really got to learn uh, painting and stuff like that. And you'll see, uh, if you see my timeline, I still go to art galleries from teachers that used to teach me at school of visual arts. That's awesome. Um, when I, when I was going there, um, I'd be sketching at all, all times with friends, all my friends, we all drew, you know, the whole crowd of people I was with were all super artistic. Most of them were way better than me. And so for me, just being in that environment was just, I got to compete. And uh, and one day I'm just sketching on a subway and the guy's looking over my shoulder and says, hey, can you do storyboards? And I said, yeah, I can do, I've been doing storyboards for Ford and, and Pan Am commercials and stuff like that. So he's like, good, you're hired. What am I hired for? And it was basically that became my first film that I worked on. And um, Gregory Hines was the director. And uh, so I went and did the storyboards, completed it, and I was gonna go home. And he's like, hey, do you wanna stick around? And again, now to make the long story short, because I know it's making it long, uh, that's how I started working in film. Um, eventually, I was just going from building sets and, and setting up sets to uh, eventually growing into art direction. At the same time, I was starting to illustrate and doing work with comic books. And so in between projects, I was jumping back and forth between either video production, a music video, a commercial, and painted illustrations. And that I did for about close to 20 years. Wow. Wow. Well, if, if, um, if my viewers and listeners have not seen his work, I definitely recommend that you do. And I'm going to be sure to give you all of his information at the end of the show, but, um, he's incredibly talented illustrator and I've, I've worked, um, I'm, I don't have that talent of design, but I've worked with many and can appreciate it. It's just amazing stuff. But yes, Carlos, uh, it's um, 
I've seen your work and it's incredibly impressive. And when you were telling your story, I was thinking to myself, you know, I wonder what his work looked like even before his schooling, because I, I just have this feeling like you were phenomenal already and you just needed to perfect your craft. Is that, is that the truth? Well, probably you won't call yourself phenomenal, right? I'll just call yeah. it for you. But. Well, <laughs> again, so the art thing was such a passion that even though I'm no longer doing it, and that's a whole other story, um, the focus is, and this will lead into the lounge, is to really cover some of the people who were my inspiration. So, uh, in other words, these are artists that blew me away that are way better than me and that I want to highlight because um, they deserve to be part of history, in my opinion. Uh, so yeah, it's, it's all these top artists that have always influenced me. And it's all those top artists that allow me to say, well, maybe if I improve or maybe if I do better, I can be close to them. So, uh, it's always been a pursuit. It's always been, um, the passion comes from finding an, another artist because there's always somebody better to say, wow, that's, um, this, this piece of art is like so incredible their technique that they might be using um the materials they might be using stuff that i don't you know that maybe i wasn't taught because there's so many different ways of doing things that you can't be taught everything and sure. i just stare at the art for a long time and you go from there so uh but you know i started you know when i was a kid with coloring books and that type of stuff uh copying comic books i mean that's a very typical story especially now that i've interviewed a lot of artists we've all kind of had that same mental pursuit and um, so that, you know, that's kind of how that rolled. So, and we're going to talk about that a little bit. We're going to talk about the lounge network and, and what that's all about. I, I wanted to start with talking about live video and live streaming. So certainly it's where you and I first connected. And so um, how, how did you, uh, how did you kind of jump into live video? So I'll do the short version fairly quickly. Um, most of both, both my careers ended after a car accident. And um, fortunately, I still have my arms and legs. But uh, what ended up happening is uh, I went into more of a deeper video field, something where I can sit down instead of be standing up all the time or lifting furniture and that type of stuff. And um, so I learned how to do post production, I learned how to do some camera work, ultimately doing some, uh, some work at uh, Good Morning America at the Ricky Lake show, doing some camera technical work. And then uh, that led into other other projects. Um, but the pursuit of art and, uh, you know, having been in the industry for a while, you know, that kind of stays with you and it stays in your mind and you say, okay, what can I do in that field? I don't want to leave it completely. And so what you end up doing is figuring out ways of using kind of what you know to pursue the things that you don't know. And then using what you do know as the intelligent part and figuring out how to do what you don't know. So, you know, when I, I moved to Atlanta, uh, you know, got married and uh, built a small studio in the house. But that was after I started shooting video um, to do like a, a DVD magazine. And with the DVD magazine, it was an idea of just modernizing and digitizing, you know, creating the next generation of what publications were gonna look like. We didn't know high-speed internet was gonna happen but I worked on projects where live streaming was starting to happen back in 1998 with FUBU. Mm -hmm. And that's when I'm like, oh my God, that they're way ahead of the times. And yet everybody had a 56K modem, so nobody could watch it. 
So that kind of stuck with me. And I thought of alternate ways of doing what they were doing on a DVD disc so that people can watch entertainers and singers and stuff. So we're interviewing people like TI. We're interviewing just known artists and, and, and illustrators and stuff like that and trying to create that content and pursue and, and, and acknowledge the really talented people that are out there. The incident eventually sped up and that reduced the costs where all I needed to do is record and then edit. Then that was costly because you would shoot and edit and that would take like a week or so before you can actually put out the product. Right. Then something like live streaming started coming into my head. I remember working on television. Everything is live. Everything is kind of transmitted and being switched in lower thirds and whole nine yards on television. So I started kind of building a, a small studio at home where I can do that without spending $100,000 on the equipment like they do professionally. And I Frankenstein my own setup. And I started doing my shows by interviewing people from all over the world. They would call me in and Skype. And I would use the studio to do the camera switching and the lower thirds and all that type of stuff. It took like six months just to practice enough to do the camera switching and having a conversation without being distracted. And I practiced with friends and all that type of stuff because it wasn't live. So it's not like the way we do tests now where we see where all the accidents happen in front of everybody. Mm -hmm. It was just a couple of close friends and we just did it. And then once I got the flow, you know, eight years later, I have a ton of content on a website called the lounge network, the internet, uh, and mobile were like some major influences in terms of how I wanted to do my content, how to reduce time and reduce cost, and then be able to put out, you know, what most people might look at as a podcast or a netcast, that type of thing. And it was mostly a concept. Can I do it? And then I ended up doing it. And it was, you know, so much of the passion of wanting to interview these people and letting people meet these people in, in a way that um, that I didn't care about monetizing at the time. But then live streaming happened and I can now do all that video production in real time and live and have people actually enjoy it as if it was the recorded version. And that's where my passion for live streaming really kicked in is like, wow, you know, everything I'm already doing, I can continue to do. And, and it's completely transparent where no one even needs to know that I'm the one that's doing all the switching. Like, you know, that's the hard part is is making it look like some kind of a video production so it normalizes it to the average consumer and they can right. just back and enjoy the content, acknowledging it as just another show without thinking, oh, that's live streamed. Oh, he's probably got somebody switching and, and then getting caught up with why is it stale or why is it just a frame with one person speaking type of thing. So that, that's kind of like where it all came from. Well, so, so here's a question for you. Um, it seems that live video or live streaming, live video streaming, that um, there seems to be two paths that are kind of uh, splitting. One where you have your content producers that are creating um, professional or semi-professional content and delivery, kind of, kind of like what we're, we're doing here with Wagner Live um, when we do the live video show. And, uh, and then up another path where, you know, the live platforms periscope probably be being one of them and of course now periscope uh has started to open up their periscope producer uh but pre-producer and maybe blab and some other platforms you know were kind of like just hang out conversational places so what are your thoughts about those two paths and you know i mean are they both viable paths are they going to connect at some point or what do you think 
Well, okay. So, I mean, you're right. So, um, here's where um, back in the day the internet started, right? And back in the day, uh, we all got excited, and people who had businesses were like, "Wow, how can we use this to bring more attention to us? How can we use this to make money?" And tons of people went, got investors, millions of dollars, and built websites, not realizing that there's no such thing as a shopping cart yet. There's no such thing as Google yet, and all that type of stuff. So all those millions were spent, and there was no way to make any of that come back. And that's what we call the dot-com boom, because once everybody realized, wait, how do you collect money? You know, <laughs> it just exploded or imploded. That's right. kind of where we are now with live streaming. So all these platforms, they're just building them. Like there's just one a week is coming out. And and it's great for us to be able to now, that's another half of what's going on is, <clears throat> you know, before you to, to do a program like this or, or of anything like this, you had to kind of pay for the equipment, tons of money, uh, you know, pay for videotapes and pay for post-production equipment and all that type of stuff. This kind of erases all that. So now the 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 cost of entry is like a webcam and a computer or a phone yep and so so that allows anybody who just even remotely gets tickled by creativity to just go on camera and do your thing right and so the, so that changes the game in a lot of different ways everybody wants to jump in just like back in the day when people who just learned code started building websites and all that type of stuff and the monetization part is the whole and that's the kind of like the trap. So we're starting to see the platforms that, you know, had a certain amount of money and they're running out of money. And now they're hoping that people will win to pay. And that's the hard part because I, I'm not a, I'm not super business person uh, where I wish I could come out with an answer and say, well, this is how you do it right. Because nobody knows, you know, right. Facebook has a gazillion dollars. They can do this. Twitter has a certain amount of money and they're suffering. And I, you know, I can't blame Periscope, but they're trying. They're figuring out stuff. Um, I got, you know, I got uh, Periscope producer uh, just last week. Oh, good. Uh, the so the puzzles are still out there, and every one of these companies that are coming out, and more will be coming out soon. Uh, they're trying to figure out when and where to monetize and how not to turn off people, yeah. us, because you know yeah. the way they drop, turn you know pisses us off, pisses off us off. And the way others say, okay, well, this week we're going to pay for it. And that pisses us off. There's, you know, there's everybody's trying to figure out the right and way to introduce these monetization models to us. And uh, it's going to be, I'd say, two years maybe before a proper introduction, a proper amount of technology, and a proper way of monetizing really come in. And we're all kind of like, oh, I feel comfortable with this. Sure. And uh, so, that, you know, so it's good and bad. You know, we're, for example, we're in Huzzah and how long will it last? We don't know. No. And, and, and right now we, we see so many, um, so many technological advancements that are coming in to create experiences for people. And we're seeing the advancements and the, the competitive race, if you will, between Google and Facebook with virtual reality, Google with their daydream VR, uh, Facebook with their Oculus Rift. And both of them are racing to, um, uh, to get that in motion. And it seems 
that um, we already see that with Periscope Producer, that they're already teasing the ability to bring VR into the mix so that maybe when you're producing something on Periscope, you're syncing up your VR goggles to where um, you're broadcasting live video with your virtual trip, kind of like what Mark Zuckerberg was teasing at his last demonstration at Oculus, right? So, well, here's my two cents on that. Now, I, of course I agree, yes, VR and augmented reality will probably be part of the future. Um, and it's exciting because so many people, so many companies are jumping in finally. But then I look at the experience with 3D TV. And I think the, the concept of putting on a pair of glasses of some sort, any sort, gets old. And that's a concern because it's not a walk-in, there it is experience. It's a, okay, hold on, get in the right position, put this on your head. You know, are you going to get dizzy? Is it timed right? You know, is that furniture in the way? Did you just fall on the face? You know, there's, there's a lot of things to be concerned about in in the future of this market. Um, but we'll see how that goes because, you know, everybody's, uh, you know, playing with uh, the idea. And uh, we'll see if anybody comes up with a better version of that idea. Right, um, right. But, but you know, even the software that I use now has the 360, you know, technology for Facebook Live. But, you know, right now, what am I going to use it for? I'm in the living room. <laughs> yeah. And, and, you know, even without the technology, it seems that uh, people are um, or companies rather are trying to figure out, you know, what are people going to be more interested in? Is it uh, scripted, prepared, organized uh, content that's done through live video or just people hanging out and being themselves? I mean, we've seen it with uh, Twitch. We've seen it with um, um, now what's really big in Korea is um, live eating. And they're, they're, and they've teased that a little bit through Twitch. And now the the owners of Twitch um, purchased a, a company that will be focusing on. And for you guys that are listening or watching that haven't seen this before, go to YouTube. And uh, there's I forgot the name of it, but there's a, a Korean name for this um, this type of video where you are eating in front of it and sometimes eating lots of food in front of the camera, just chatting, hanging out, kind of like you do with Twitch and gaming, except here you're eating. And so I think people are trying to figure out like what's gonna entertain people, right? Absolutely. Um, and then that in itself is interesting because one of the issues I find in terms of even me doing my shows or these kind of live shot uh, broadcasts is uh, of course, it's going to appeal to different markets, right? So uh, not everybody's going to care about watching two people just talking to each other about business or, um, you know, YouTube has been a great volatile way of demonstrating all the different types of markets that are available. Um, you look at the videos, everything from movie trailers to people cooking to, you know, live uh, shots of war-torn nations to, you know, uh, just about anything. And there's a small fan base for everybody. Now, granted, it doesn't mean everybody should be broadcasting and everybody will gain an audience. That's part of the concern about all this. But um, it, it's if you're doing it out of a passion, that's one. But two, and if you gain a big audience, you'll, you'll probably get to monetize it and make money out of it. But uh, if you're doing it because you're thinking you're going to make money, that's a rough one because... 
then you're going to start thinking too hard. Mm-hmm. You know what I'm saying the passion is not going to be there. You're trying to formulate something and, and the authenticity doesn't come through. So, yeah, uh, those are those are some concerns that I look at uh, even when I'm doing some of my shows. Uh, you know, I, I do it because I think there's people with talent out there that are too afraid to take the next step and then become the next pizza delivery boy. Right. And, uh, you know, that's always a cliche of, you know, if you don't pursue it, you'll never know if you ever make it. And right. uh, so I want to show and demonstrate by interviewing the artists and filmmakers and musicians that I interview. Hey, look, these guys overcame their fears and granted, they're not super successful yet but they're overcoming it and look how good they are. They're really talented. So that's kind of what that's about. And, uh, but I don't know if, I don't, I don't always know if when I do these interviews, if it's entertaining enough. I think you're very entertaining, Carlos. So, (laughs) but I know what you mean. Yes. Yes. And, and, you know, I, I think that, and I think you'd agree there's because of the, um, the very low barrier to entry now, as you discussed earlier, um, through technology that's affordable to everybody, as opposed to where it was uh, ages ago. Um, there's so many people putting out content, good, bad, mediocre. But what's interesting, I find, is that there's someone interested in just about everything. Some gain very big audiences and we've seen YouTube celebrities that are making millions of dollars. And then some people that have smaller audiences, but there seems to be someone interested, even in some content that you might think that, eh, I don't know if anybody's interested in that. I bet you there's somebody there that wants that, that will spend some time. I mean, listen, if they're spending time watching someone eating, right? right. <laughs> there's well, someone for everything. That kind of leads into the stuff that I'm working on now. Um, yeah, talk talk about this a little bit. Let's let's talk about what you what you're doing so, now. I'm hoping to launch this. You know, it's going to be a long time before everything's kind of put together. But I'm part, trying to put a website together where uh, the the genre that I'm looking at is the nerdy geek genre, basically the 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 culture of being a nerd, being a geek, and all the different intricacies of being a nerd and a geek. All the different things that you're interested in as a nerd and geek. I'm a nerd. I'm a geek. I've been one ever since I was in school. You know, drawing Spider Man in the corner of my you know, notebooks. And, uh, you know, but now it seems like we're living in the geek culture where that's the cool mainstream, right? You know, every movie, every every two movies is a comic book movie now. Every uh, TV shows is a comic book TV show. Um, you know, the food that they eat, the fashion that they wear, the the cars that they buy, you know, that's what I'm looking to appeal to at this moment and expanding, you know, what live stream is going to bring to the fray and also what content creation will bring to the website. And uh, so I'm slowly building it. It'll be a combination of video and blogs and audio and all that type of stuff. And uh, so hopefully I'll be launching that sometime next year. That's great. That's great. Oh, I, I hope when you do, and I'm, I'm sure because we talk quite often that you'll be back on the show and you'll be able to, to promote it and talk more about it. Yeah. Cause that's something yeah, so exciting. I, I'm always looking out to see who's, because I don't want the show just to be with me in it, you know? Uh, so I'm looking to open it so that people who are really passionate about those type of topics would be like, Hey, you know, I'm already doing a show or I want to start one or something like that. And they can really be creative about it. I already know how to build a studio. So it's just a matter of saying, Hey, let's do this. So, 
And it's quite possible that, you know, we, it'll be easy for us to talk about it because Wagner Live might be on that platform. <laughs> Correct. Right? And, so there you go. You know, and it, it could be a complete, it, it's all about the culture and it's all about, um, how should I put it? I'm a geek about certain things, but I'm not exposed to everything, right? So I'm hoping that in these shows, I'll learn something different. You know, um, there's a, this food that I haven't tried that I've tried then and say, wow, if I had only known. And so those are the kind of things I want to gain exposure in. So, it's a, you know, a lot of the content that I'm looking to create is content that I never would have thought of because others are do, doing the thinking of it and, and doing the creation of it. And hopefully uh, we can then monetize it and see if we can get a big audience from it. Now, now, will this be separate from the Lounge Network, or so, does so it connect? The way I look at it is, um, you know, th there was a time I worked in publications. And what a lot of people don't know is publications, most publications, you go to the shelf. There's probably about uh, 300,000 publications. Uh, if you step back a little bit, uh, most of the American ones are owned by about 8 to 10 companies. So what's the formula? What they are is it's a core company that acts kind of like an ad agency, and they create all these different uh, magazines for these different cultures and, and genres and stuff like that, and then go to the advertiser and say, okay, well, these are all the genres we cover. Which ones do you want to advertise in? Like the Hearst Publications, for example. Right. So, so that's kind of how that formula works. And uh, so the formula is, you know, have an umbrella company and – build different websites that create different types of content and appeal to a variety of our audiences. That's great. I, I mean, another um, um, example would probably be channels or, or exactly. a broadcast network, right? Right. Like Disney, Disney owns ABC, they own uh, certain sports networks and stuff like that. So, you know, that none of that's the same. We recognize Disney as, you know, Mickey Mouse and yet they own Marvel. They own, you know, Lucasfilm. They own a lot of entertainment companies, and uh, but we don't we don't think about it. And food works the same way. You know, most you go to the supermarket, it's got hundreds of thousands of items. They're owned probably by seven food companies, and that's just how all these markets work. And here we are in the U.S., so we don't realize that. Right. Well, I wanted to ask you about you know as a as a creative, um, what do you think about the creative landscape today? Um, where um, you know, where are we? Are you happy where things are? What are your thoughts? I mean, there's so many goods and bads. Um, you know, goods are like what we're talking about now. You know, here we are, we're doing a show. Um, I never would have met you if not for this technology, right? So, so that that's well, thank you. positives. Uh, the negatives, of course, look at the music industry. It's in shambles, uh, but it exposes a lot of new artists using the internet. Uh, you know, uh, I I just recently interviewed uh, a fairly well-known artist. If you're into science fiction fantasy, uh, his, and I'm going to release this soon on on YouTube, which I should have done that already. Uh, his name is Greg Hildebrandt, and Greg Hildebrandt had done one of the original Star Wars posters, and he's just done done token JR token uh, book covers. If you've ever gone to the bookstores, you've seen his artwork. <clears throat> that being said. I asked him, what do you think of, you know, digital artists? And he's like, don't do it. <laughs> and so, and I'm like, well, why not? You know, it, it allowed, like for me, I use an iPad Pro and I stopped carrying a sketchbook, you know, years back. But 
I can whip out my iPad, draw a quick sketch, and it looks like the pencil sketch. The reason he said that don't do it, you shouldn't do it is because you don't have anything to give away or you don't have anything to sell. Mm. Right? So there's no original piece that's going to gain in value. When we're at the gallery looking at his art show, all his pieces were like $10,000 and up. If it was all digitally done, maybe you can sell a postcard or something or a poster. I don't know. But don't, good- don't you think, though, even though it's digitally done, that it requires the same craft and talent to to produce that it doesn't make it any easier or well i i answer that uh so so on the lounge network i i do a show called artist alley and artist alley is where i interview the known and established artists uh disney directors uh, people who worked in toy lines uh people who are uh, fine artists or uh, world-renowned uh you know illustrators and some of those illustrators have now switched to digital why? Because they don't get paid to keep their illustrations. They get paid to do the illustration, get it published, and it's a job. But fine artists, obviously, not they don't. Most of them don't think that way. They're like, well, I get paid by the original. So there's going to be, you know, a difference in the culture and mentality. Yeah, you, ultimately, you're still kind of drawing. You still have to have the skill, and um, it's just a different skill, you know. Uh, art used to be one of the most poisonous jobs out there because you're using chemicals. You're using, the paint has cancer-causing chemicals, yet is the only legal access to those type of chemicals. And the reason they use them is because it's what brightens up the color. Now you can just do it safely. So yeah, there's the right. big ads and everything. Right, right. Well, you know, yeah, I, 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 I can see that, and I think that. I'm I'm not um, you know I'm not an artist of, of that nature or designer and I I I'm thinking that in a digital platform the way that you manipulate colors may be different than how you would through right or, uh, well a little bit I mean I've seen some painting apps where they try to keep it traditional and how they figured it out is beyond me but it works <laughs> um, that's awesome so let's just look at all the different forms of art audio. You know, not a lot of people do play musical instruments anymore. Uh, video, you can use your cell phone now to shoot video. Um, look at uh, uh, what other forms of art. There's uh, you know, publications. There's no paper being used anymore. Um, you know, photography, it's all digital now. Manipulating, you know, you can use manipulation now. It's different. Before, you used to use chemicals and different timings of exposures. Uh, so every form of art is being affected by these digital changes and manipulation of art. And, uh, you know, there's plenty of things that can allow people to enjoy. Look at a movie. So another form of art, what I used to do, build sets. Uh, you know, part of building a set was like understanding the character. And if we're doing an apartment, we'd splatter on the wall because if it's like an Italian mom that lives there, you want it to look and feel like she lived there you know, for the past 20, 30 years. And there's those times when she had that splatter of spaghetti that kind of went on the walls and they didn't clean it right type of stuff. And those are the kind of things you think about when you're building sets uh, and outside of how to make things work, you know, within a camera range. And now you just put a green screen and digitally superimpose it in the background and there's no thought process. I mean, there's a thought process in the digital creation of it. Right. It's, yeah. The vision, you know, because now you can have futuristic cities 
as to before, you know, it was a couple of small models that you made it look like. So, you know, it, it, there's again, the goods and bads of everything. Yeah, no, I, I think that's, I think you make a really good point. Well, so uh, tell, um, uh, tell everyone a little bit about um, where they can uh, learn more about you, where um, they may be able to follow you, where you want them to follow you. <laughs> or if maybe you don't want them to follow you. <laughs> sure. uh, so on uh, Facebook, it's Carlos Phoenix. Twitter, uh, the one I use the most is at Real TLN. Uh, stands for the Real, the Lounge Network. And uh, and then of course you can see the website, uh, theloungenetwork.com, and eventually nerdygeeks.co. Well, Carlos, thank you so much. That's it for our show for today. Um, we will be back on Sunday, October the 24th at 8 p.m. Eastern Daylight Time, 5 p.m. Pacific. And you can join me live at that time for the Marketing Weekly Wrap-Up, where I bring you the latest in news, business, marketing, advertising, and branding with expert commentary and Q&A. You won't want to miss that. And it's always a good time and very informative. And as always, be sure to use hashtag Wagner Live to send me your feedback, communicate with the show, and for links to future live video broadcasts. And if you're interested in being part of the live video audience for future broadcasts or for replays, always visit Wagner.live. Until next time, this is Wagner signing off.